Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff, brought to you by Livewire Markets. Graham Screw-Turner grew up in splendid isolation. His family owned an orchard in southeast Queensland, and he rode a pushbike to school, which was so small it only required one teacher. Even when he went to university, he avoided humans and decided to study vet science. Screw, now 74 years old, still sits atop of Flight Centre, Australia's largest travel agency, which operates in 24 countries. He is the fearless leader of thousands of employees and has a unique management technique that has allowed the company to scale well beyond its humble beginnings. His leadership skills have developed on the job and not through an elite management school in the Northern Hemisphere. While Flight Centre was officially born in the early 1980s in Australia, its predecessor, Top Deck, kicked off in 1973, dreamt up over a beer with some friends at Oktoberfest in Munich, Germany. The Top Deck story is legendary in Australian corporate history with Screw and his clan driving buses out of London to all parts of the globe, including Afghanistan and Morocco. He was back in London a few weeks ago to celebrate the 50th birthday of Top Deck and enjoy a beer with some of the old crew who shared his sense of adventure. Screw has come a long way in the 50 years and has run into a few potholes and even roadblocks. There was 9-11, the GFC, and of course, the COVID-19 virus that induced a near-death experience for Flight Center. Somehow, he has battled through and still seems to enjoy it. In fact, not much has changed. He still looks and sounds like an orchard farmer from Queensland, retaining his laid-back manner that disguises an entrepreneur with a mean competitive streak. Welcome, Graham, and happy birthday to Top Deck. How was the party in London? It was pretty good, Matthew. Actually, um, yes, there's been a documentary made on it by Bill James, uh, one of my partners, his son, Richard. It's showing around um, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, I think, sort of premiering over the next few weeks. So uh, we we actually premiered it in London at a theatre at the Sea Containers Hotel, and uh, it was very well received. And obviously after that, we went on to um, party in, in another part of London un, um, under the railway track. So uh, had a big night over there. And, uh, you came back with a cough, so it must have been quite yeah. fun. So I don't know if you had actors in the movie, but if you did, who played Graham Turner? <laughs> no, it was a documentary, and, and uh, it's really interesting because – uh, there was a lot of old footage that I I didn't even know we had, and uh, yeah, whether it's a Decker on the in the Kabul Gorge in Afghanistan or um, at, at Pamplona running of the bulls and all this sort of thing, uh, it's uh, it's an hour of uh, uh, you know of the basically the history of Top Deck and how that uh, morphed into uh, Flight Center, and um, yeah, we we. Top Deck had a couple of near-death experiences, uh, both when we were running it in the early 80s. We started to run out of cash at one stage. And also, um, yeah, and Mick Carroll had a big role to play in that in London as well as Bill James. But then um, we we went back and bought it back when we knew it was in serious trouble and put James Nathan, who was a um, friend but also a um, professional tour operator over many years, uh, in the early 2000s, and and then of course Flight Centre bought the rest of us out of uh, of Top Deck in 2015. So there's sort of a, a bit of a full circle there. Yeah, and what is it about Yorkshire vets? They all seem to have their own shows. All creatures great <laughs> and small, and I think there's actually on Foxtel is a show called Yorkshire Vet because that's what you were when you started Top Deck. 
Yeah, well, I was working in a, a place called Selby, which is near Leeds in Yorkshire, and um, yeah, we went out. I was uh, as I had a student vet with me as well, and after we'd seen this horse, I don't know, I can't remember what was wrong with the horse, but it, it won't be around any longer, that's for sure. But um, we came across this bus yard full of uh, old, you know, double decker buses. It, it, it's, it was an actual old airfield, World War Two airfield, and it was just packed with hundreds and hundreds of double-deckers that have been retired from the, um, you know, from various uh, cities. And um, one of them had been fitted out. And uh, so all a lot of the hard work had been done, and that's when we went to the beer fest uh, with some friends, another vet friend and I, and I'd convinced him that we should buy this bus. I think it was 650 pounds at the time, and uh, run some trips. So that's how it all started uh, Seven, uh, 50 years ago. And where did that sense of adventure come from? Like I said in the introduction that you grew up in splendid isolation, that might have been a, a little bit harsh, but the orchard and then the one teacher's school and there wasn't many kids in the school. Is it the fact that you were isolated, that you were looking out to the world and it was exciting? I think it had a fair bit to do with it. You know, um, anyone who grows up on a relatively isolated farm, you know, whether it's an orchard or, or sheep or cattle would would know that you know and this was very much a family affair like um i had an elder sister but um mum and dad both worked full-time at the orchard you know mum uh, mainly in the shed packing apples and all that sort of thing so uh, by the time i was 15 and went away to boarding school um you know you were you were looking for something a bit more exciting than um the, you know talking to the family and uh and uh, I think we, we got TV in 1965, so that was pretty exciting too, I can remember. But um, when I got to boarding school, I couldn't believe my luck. You know, that all you had to do was get up in the morning you know, and go to, uh, go to classes and then play sport for the rest of the afternoon and maybe a couple of hours of, of homework at night. I mean, it was uh, it, you know, no work. What was that? And hang out with your mates all day. Exactly. And then, of course, you go to uni for five years, um, staying at a college on campus. And, um, you know, uh, again, you know, it's like being in heaven. There's no doubt. So there's no doubt that growing up on a a small farm with just your family for company most of the time and uh, having a one-teacher school with, you know, I think there were six classes generally. You know, there are eight grades, six classes, and around the 30 to 40 students all up. So you can imagine you didn't get too much of the teacher's time, which uh, sort of suited me, I guess. Not much variety either in terms of people you meet. But that, but just on the farm, yeah. there's a few other things that you would I would imagine that you got from being in that situation. One of them is a sense of independence, but... Also, growing up on a farm, I imagine in your own head you assess risk slightly differently because farming's a risky business, isn't it? Did you ever feel that that you later in later years when you look back and said, "Ah, oh, that formulated the way I, I think about things when going into business"? Look, certainly, as you can imagine, uh, a relatively small farm post-war. Your mum and dad, I think, um, bought it in 1946, and Almost, you know, from the relatively earliest age, like I can remember 
dad teaching me to drive the tractor when I was seven because in those days to spray the apple trees, it was you spray it by hand. So you need someone to drive the tractor and someone to operate the spray. And and from from that time on, dad would um, discuss business things with me. Yeah, I mean, he wouldn't necessarily take any notice of what I said, but yeah, he did. He and, and mum, to a certain extent, did involve us kids in um, you know in, in what the decisions were from a business point of view from the farm. From memory too, the um, yeah we we mainly grew apples, peaches, plums, and pears, and. Post-war, there was reasonably good money in them, so it was, um, you know, it was quite a uh, family business, which was discussed around the, the dinner table, as well as uh, you know, one-on-one with Dad in, in various things. He didn't have anyone else to talk to either, so he'd run things past me and, you know, not taking notice of me, of course. No, but you got to have someone to talk to, even if you are seven. It, it always helps, as you, as you would know. Exactly. So, you, you went off to study vet science while you were studying because that's a long course. It's five years, as you said. And do, were you thinking about business then? Were you going to be you have your own surgery? Um, with, or, or was it a lot simpler than that, just live day by day and have a good time? Interesting question. I think certainly I didn't, you know, I used to work at home um, at Christmas holidays and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and sometimes I'd work, uh, you, you had to do prac work on other farms and that sort of thing as well. But no, I, I don't recall really being that interested in business at the time. You know, it was um, it was basically study, sport and uh, having a good time uh, was the three main priorities with, you know, trying to earn a bit of money in holidays and that sort of thing too, uh, or, you know, working at the show, the Brisbane Exhibition or something like that. So, that was the main priority for those five years. So then we'll, we'll fast forward, and, and you've talked about a bit of a rite of passage, Australians going off to the UK and seeing Europe, which was obviously a big part of the world. But then, then you've told us about purchasing the bus. But what, what, what ignited that? Was, was looking after animals just a bit too dull at the time, or was it just youthful exuberance? And, and you thought, well, why don't we give it a go? It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, well, uh, I think the history was, you know, we went over as a group of us from uni um, who, who, you know, we'd studied together for quite a Some were engineers and some were um, vets and others. Uh, we'd studied together or went to a manual college together. Um, and uh, we went over to the 1972 Munich Olympics. So, you know, we worked uh, and saved from probably November when, uh, you know, when we graduated to um, to that, and I think it was in August 1972, the Munich Olympics. And after that, uh, we bought, a few of us bought vans in Munich and um, travelled around Europe for the next uh, probably five or six months and then back to the UK to um, you know, earn some more money and do locums. So we hadn't done our, we hadn't done the travel we wanted to. So, you know, doing locums in the UK, and I, and I did about, six months of locums, I think, before the, or, or probably eight months, was basically to uh, earn money to do more travelling. And uh, the bus was sort of, um, came rather luckily about it. You know, otherwise we probably would have continued travelling in a van or something like that. And uh, obviously with a bus, it's expensive to run. And so we needed um, 
paying passengers to uh, help pay for the trips. And of course, you get friends and that who say they're going to come with you and then they um, they pull out without paying any money. So that's when we decided, no, it has to be run on a business sort of basis. And I think for the first trip was um, a six-week Spain, Portugal, Moroccan for uh, £100 for the trip and £3 a week food kitty, which, um, you know, the passengers cooked on roster two at a time, that sort of thing, It was which was quite a common thing in... in um, but most of our competition was, well, all of our competition for that Australian market living in London was uh, coach camping tours. And that's the big differential thing we had, differentiator. You know, we, we slept on board the bus, our kitchen and, and was on board the bus and tables and that sort of thing. So uh, it was pretty popular right from the start. And, and it grew quite quickly. I, I know that when you got back, one of your um, colleagues said, well, you, I can get another bus, I'll get it ready, and you go out again. But it wasn't hmm. like you had tens of buses on the roads. Uh, but that came with a lot of risk. That that first bus uh, we bought, you know, we went left in November 73. Bill was a passenger on the first bus, and he was the one who says, I'm going to go and get another bus and fit it out. Now, we had to fit it out from scratch. And then we bought another one in June, which was already fitted out, to a reasonable extent, because we had trips running, but no bus. You know, so, so we um, th- then I came back uh, from a trip in late '74, and I think we bought another three buses. Uh, I, I know the names of them were Snort, Snot, and Slug. Then '75, late '75, we did the first overland from London to Kathmandu. Bill and I took that out. I think by 1979, 1980, we had about about 70, 75 buses running all over Europe through the um, through the Middle East and uh, Afghanistan to uh, Cap- India and Pakistan, Kathmandu. Uh, but we also were running trips London to Sydney as well. We had three fitted out double deckers in uh, in Australia at the same you know, in nineteen seventy eight, I think. And we were running trips Sydney to London, London to Sydney, with it running on public transport and escorted through um, through South Southeast Asia, and starting the bus trip in Kathmandu. So, um, you know, and, and, and of course this this brought issues because so, we'd spent there was some accident. We had a few accidents. Uh, nothing um, in about. 1979, we had a, a um, we had some coaches that we ran to Russia and Scandinavia because the tunnels wouldn't allow the tunnels in uh, Scandinavia in Norway wouldn't um, allow double deckers, and we had a rollover in Russia uh, on an icy road um, of one of those, and we had one um, one girl passenger was killed on that, um, and. But that was the only fatality that I can remember actually happening through an accident. But, um, you know, you, you, it, it was one of those things that um, fairly stressful, getting buses ready, getting them out on time, hiring crew, dealing with breakdowns. Um, I know Mick Carroll, who was one of our partners in the 80s um, and ran it when, when we started uh, Flight Centre up, ringing me at three o'clock in the morning from Afghanistan 
with an engine um, that had blown up between um, uh, Herat, I think, and uh, Kabul. And so we had to get an engine flown out to that. So that's the sort of thing that you had to do. I don't think I'd be too um, – it'd be hard to do these days. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was great training for what was ahead. But So fast forward a little bit, you get married, you've got a child on the way, you decide to head back to Australia. When you're sitting on the flight, the, the, I don't know how long it was in 1980, but I'll say 24 hours, did you have Flight Centre in your head? Uh, yeah, interesting one. Actually, I think the flight, one of those flights I remember was on um, Syrian Arab Air and Pakistani International and uh, Philippine Airlines, I think, and I think it took 44 hours, but uh, it was cheap. Yeah, and when I was in London, one of the guys that worked for us for a while at Top Deck was recruited to run this bucket shop. And bucket shops in London at the time, and this is uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, were shops that sold discounted airfares. That air- airlines, generally you had to be licensed ABTA agent before you were allowed to sell a- airline um, tickets. But airlines obviously had these empty seats going out and, th- and they were quite regulated in terms of what they could charge through the after. You know, th- they had to be official IATA prices, but some enterprising people uh, started what they call bucket shops up and um, some of the airlines supplied them with discounted tickets. And these were quite successful. This guy, uh, Dave Tonkin, who was actually at the reunion recently, he set up Sydney Flight Centre in a 50-50 arrangement with Top Deck. And I, I think the agreement said, and he still got the letter, that Dave Tonkin, it's agreed here with the undersigned that uh, Dave Tonkin does all the work and Top Deck gets half the profits. And anyway, the first full year, he made $93,000, you know, which we found it hard to believe and I think he did too. And uh, so he can't remember him coming over to uh, to London where I was then and said, um, look, I, I... I, I want to buy you out, you know, what we think, um, and I think we got uh, sort of $100,000 for 50%, and we used that to open up in um, in Brisbane and, and uh, Sydney, and, and Jeff Harris, one of the other partners, came in to uh, open up in Melbourne late, late that 1982. So that's how, that's how we got going, and uh, believe it or not, in Australia at the time, it was also illegal to discount airfares even if you got different prices from airlines. And uh, we never got prosecuted, actually, but uh, other travel agents did after we set up um, Sydney Flight Centre and Brisbane Flight Centre and the flight shop in Melbourne. So luckily that changed in about 83, 84. The government legislated so that you were allowed to discount airfares. Uh, You weren't allowed to when you first set up to discount those airfares. So Qantas and... Ansett and whoever else was flying at the time would have been on your back, wouldn't they? Oh, definitely. Um, and, and we really, through the 80s, we probably we, we probably couldn't sell uh, Qantas. And I remember getting visited in the late 80s by senior Qantas officials uh, basically saying that they didn't want us to be selling their, their tickets. And we said, well, you know, you don't pay us enough anyway. Um, I think they paid us 9% at the time. 
So uh, you don't have to worry about us selling your tickets. And uh, we started selling. That was all international. We bought a lot of the tickets out of London and uh, what we call reverse ticketed. Like, for example, I remember we could buy a PRPK, which is Philippine Airlines, Pakistani Airlines, um, out of London uh, for about, it was when the, the Australian dollar was very strong too. I think we could buy it out of London for about, $450 $450 return, and even with discounting, you could sell it for about $1,100 in Australia. So we were making, you know, um, 120% profit margin, and you would reverse ticket. In other words, you'd pull the, um, you know, they're obviously paper tickets, and you'd, you'd change the, the, you know, the tickets around so that, that and so, you know, we, we did make a lot of money, but they're all, they were generally, nearly all international, and how also, it cost me if I bought it here. How much were you discounting? Um, it would have cost about four hundred dollars. So we discounted by about a hundred, hundred, maybe two hundred dollars. And that and, was enough to get attention from the public. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we were probably the only ones doing this because we had the operation in London as well. We, we set up London Flight Centre, I think, in eighty three, under Top Deck. And um, so, you know, we we had the capability of buying these tickets um, from the airlines in London or through consolidators in London. And, uh, you know, we weren't popular here, I can assure you. Um, the, the, the TCF was set up, Travel Compensation Fund, uh, basically in, re- in the late 80s, 89, I think, 90, basically to respond to us because... By that stage, uh, we had about, um, well, we had, we're, we're probably getting up towards 70 travel agencies in Australia and uh, a lot of the traditional travel agents, which were largely owned by the banks or airlines, were getting quite concerned about our growth and uh, they set up the Travel Compensation Fund, which basically meant you needed, uh, it was pretty much almost like having trust accounts. And uh, that was essentially to try to get rid of us. And um, what happened over the next 20 years was, of course, that we we were the main contributor to the fund. And um, a lot of other travel agents went broke and we funded them. So uh, <laughs> when did you know that Flight Centre could be virtually in every, you know, every shopping centre, every, you know, throughout all the CBDs of Australia? You talked about 70 shops, but you obviously went a lot further than that domestically. When yeah, did you know? Well, I go on and say, we can really make a big business out of this. Oh, look, it, we 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 had a model that was a bit based on the uh, top deck model of you know uh, independence and resilience and uh, having a go. And uh, generally, we'd talk people into coming in partnership, like Dave Tonkin. Generally, it was they. Uh, we generally got them to own about twenty five percent of the shop. And by the time we had about that 70, you know, late 80s, early 90s, 70 to 100 shops, it was becoming a nightmare because we had about, you know, we had a separate company for every shop for the shareholding. That's when we set up a um, business ownership scheme where people would buy into their, you know, it was a facility that uh, they could buy 25% of it. Uh, for example, the 25% of the average shop would probably cost Twenty five thousand, and it was a uh, they'd get a the the interest on that would be their share of the profits, 
And we did that in probably about 90, 91. Uh, and, and when we floated, as you can, uh, you would know, we, um, we floated in late 95. And, uh, we, at that time, we had about, I think we were doing about 930 million in Australia and New Zealand. And, uh, had, I know we had about 300 shops at that stage. So we'd, we'd grown pretty rapidly. And so the reason for floating, you needed that capital, you needed a better structure to be a big business? Well, that wasn't the primary reason. Um, I think that certainly helped us, you know, uh, because we were pretty uh, loose um, before having to float. The, the main reason really was to be able to bring in um, staff as shareholders. We floated, I think we floated about 25% of the company in 95. Uh, the official price was 95 cents. And um, I think we, the staff could buy at 85 cents. Uh, and I think, um, you know, some of the staff bought, I think they could buy up to 50,000 shares. And there was a, a reasonable number that bought that, uh, bought 50,000. But, um, you know, obviously uh, the share price went up to, I don't know, I think seven or eight dollars fairly quickly. And I think we had originally about 65 million shares. Up until COVID, I think we 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 ended up with about a hundred million uh, pre-COVID. So, um, and and yeah, we we had our ups and downs. That's for sure. Before the yeah, we, you may remember we tried to take it private in I think two thousand six when our share price was three dollars fifty. I think, and then of course the GFC hit us as well. But um, yeah, most of these things uh, didn't last long, and we came out of them pretty well. And uh, we reached our peak in terms of profit and profit net profit margin in 2014. We did about, I think, about 370 million profit out of about 16 billion in TDV. So, um, yeah, we, we certainly uh, want to get back to those sort of levels, as you know. No, an incredible story. And you came out when you listed like a slingshot, like you said, you must have thought how good this. But you have mentioned the staff there and with every business, and you're, you're a people business effectively. There's a lot of people join the company, and as I said in the intro, in the end, thousands. I remember you telling me years ago that you had a certain management style and, and to try and keep people in pods, uh, and there was an effective amount uh, or, or a right number of people working together that would generate the most productivity. I think at the time you said up to six people can be quite productive as long as they then have access to the top rung of management very quickly. It, have you built the company on that system and does it still exist today? Yeah, basically, um, you know, we're obviously uh, some of these basic rules that you establish and mainly through experience, but um, also this, the, there was a um, London School of Economics uh, professor, Nigel Nicholson, put out a paper probably in the 90s that basically agreed with us in terms of the way we structured things. And this is why we, we called it families, villages and tribes. The family being the, you know, the, the team at, a, say, a shop level. Uh, the village being a loose, you know, a group of half a dozen teams or shops. And the tribes being um, basically the largest self-sufficient area 
which generally contained up to 20 shops or, you know, six, maybe uh, five or six villages or three or four villages, say. And we found that that – so they were basically – we call them te- um, teams or shops, um, at, which was a family size. And we found out pretty early on that once you got over six or seven people in a team, they were very hard for a team leader – who was also a fully participating in selling, uh, to manage. And once you got over 20 shops as an area, which, you know, say 120 to maybe up to 150 people, it was very hard for a area leader to, um, to lead it. You know, it's just, it just got too hard. So in the end, we, we were a company, uh, say in 95 with 300 shops, we probably had 15 or 20 areas and um and, and and with the 300 shops and and probably about 1500 people as we've grown since then of course we've tried to maintain that and um now obviously the market's changed quite a bit we're in heavily into corporate travel we have now a setting up at what we call global business services which is all the support services that you need in our 20 you know when running our 27 countries and one of the things that I'm trying to um, ascertain at the moment is that everyone, not only in the businesses, but in our global business services and in our supply division, are they in are they in a team of six or seven or so? Do they have a team leader? And is that are they groups of teams in areas? So, um, and I'm not convinced that. Um, We've got it right everywhere, you know. So these are the sort of things you have to have some purges uh, go through every now and then just to um, see that we're still doing things the right way because it, it, this is basically the ingrained uh, way humans like to live and work. Uh, and that's certainly Nigel Nicholson's view and uh, it's certainly my view uh, as well now. And, and there's been other books written about this, the way humans like to work, and they're, and they're basically – the way prehistoric humans lived in the Stone Age. And I think the title of one book is you can take the um, Stone Age out of the – oh, I can't remember that. <laughs> you can take the Stone Age out of the human, but you can't take the human out of the Stone Age. Well, you can take the humans out of the Stone Age, but you can't take the Stone Age out of humans. And, um, you know, that, that's evolved over hundreds of thousands or hundreds of thousands of generations, of course. And, and, and another thing I've noticed from all the discussions we've had over the years and again today is that you, you've been willing to start businesses and, and bend the rules a bit or, or ignore some of the rules, both in Top Deck and then Flight Centre and so on. And that, that suits your personality in the sense that give it a go. We'll go on. But is there another message there for everyone that, that the, the prize is the big prize at the end, keep the eye on the end goal. Don't sweat the small stuff too much. I mean, you've got that great story of trying to get your bus onto the ferry to go to Morocco and the small things will, will get sold. Let's concentrate on what's out there. Yeah, there's an element of that. I mean, you know, uh, our basic uh, goal is to be a, uh, a large, diversified travel company, uh, successful travel company. Now, you know, there will be often 
people who say, and they're probably true to a certain extent, that focusing on, you know, for example, our corporate travel now is now bigger than our leisure travel. I think last year our $22 billion in TTV, about $11 billion was in corporate travel and $10 billion in leisure and a billion in other. Um, so, but, you know, I think, I think the business has got to be fun, interesting, um, and, and I like that diversified aspect of it as well. Uh, although it might not, you know, you might certainly in the shorter term get better results by being much more streamlined in terms of what your business is. We, we also follow a concept of the alchemy of growth. I don't know whether you've heard of it, but basically talks about, they talk about their Harvard uh, professors who wrote a paper on this. I can't remember their names. Actually, even if I remember their names, I don't think I could pronounce them. But their basic concept is that to become a Horizon 1 business, you need to have a stable of Horizon 2 businesses, even Horizon 3 businesses. And Horizon 3 businesses might be just a concept that you might be just uh, trialling. A Horizon 2 business is a business that's... um, been established, it might be three or four or five years old, and it has the potential, you believe, to become a Horizon One business. Horizon One business, you know, they're the backbone of the organisation and, um, for example, Flight Centre is a Horizon One business, Corporate Travel is a Horizon One business, and uh, FCM Travel is a Horizon One business as far as we're concerned. But we have a lot of Horizon Two businesses uh, that's, for example, Travel Money, yeah, we shut it totally down during COVID, and now we've we've opened opened up eighty shops already, and it is absolutely firing. You know, we just can't um, we we just can't open shops and teams quickly enough, and we're looking at it's in Australia, New Zealand at the moment, but we're looking at growing it overseas, and so we have quite a stable of those Horizon Two businesses that we believe can eventually become Horizon 1 businesses. The same thing applies, I think, to the pedal group, which is in the um, you know, 99 bikes and, and the um, advanced traders. And so it's a, it's a pretty classic Horizon 2 business that we, we would like to see become eventually Horizon 1 business, which means yeah, they can consistently make 20, 30, 40, 50 million profit um, a year. So... Um, that, that's so. That's that's basically, I suppose, our concept. And it's it's about having fun and enjoying what you're doing and liking what you're doing, rather than just purely going for the, um, you know, what might be the best short to medium term results. Uh, I suppose, Matthew. COVID nineteen was probably the worst of what we've seen in terms of the travel industry. As I said in the intro, there's a lot of potholes, but COVID nineteen knocked everything for six. A lot of things came out of that and, and wouldn't mind just going through a few of them. Now, one of them was that you needed to raise money. And, and, and unfortunately for the company, it was at a lower price because share prices had tanked in that period. Was that annoying that you had to raise that money at that point in time after being in control of a growth business for so long? I mean, yeah, it was annoying. I mean, it was more than annoying. Um, but it, it, it was... You know, we. I, I got back from London, I think, in March the 12th, 
and uh, that was a Thursday, I think. And I think the next weekend was when Trump shut the borders into America from Europe. And that, that weekend, I think uh, Morrison shut the Australian borders. Um, and that was devastating to us. Uh, obviously, um, shortly after, you know, we, we went from, for example, our expenses pre-COVID each month were about $225 million a month. Our income was generally around that two fifty million a month. We went to obviously no income, as a matter of fact, negative income because we had to do a lot of refunds, refunding a lot of uh, commission and all this sort of thing over the next few months. So um, we had about one one point three billion in cash, but that we knew that wasn't going to last long. And obviously, going to no income. Uh, our share price dived, as did all the other travel stocks, for you know for obvious reasons. Uh, and I think um, I think we raised money originally at uh, at about seven dollars fifty eight dollars, something like that. Uh, so you know that was from a high previous pre pre COVID. We're at about I don't know forty five dollars. I think. I think I think you got to sixty at one stage. There we did get to sixty briefly, yeah, um, and that was with about a hundred million shares. And, and Matthew, just over that, you know, I've done a few calculations, and if if you look at what COVID really cost us as a company, and you know, this is not the human costs I'm talking about either, the financial cost, in terms of losses and lost profit, assuming that we were making consistently about 350 million a year, it adds up to about 3. billion losses. And I've done a quick calculation. Uh, well, I've done a table. I like I like doing these tables. By 2029, if we get to where I'd like to think we can get to, and this is this is not forecasting, this is um, just speculation, but to get back that 3.2 billion, it'll take us. We'll get, we'll get there 29, 30, 30, 31. So you know, if, to get to assuming that we make, you know, if we get back to the pre-COVID profitability. And keep growing our profitability, um, and keep growing our TDV. It'll take us, yeah, it'll take us to 2030, probably 2032, to get back those losses. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a long time and it's a long horizon for something that I think was totally overdone. And you saw what happened in places like Sweden, even the third world where they couldn't afford to lock places down. And you compare that with something like Victoria in particular or New Zealand. Um, it was just totally overdone. And unfortunately, what we're worried about is I don't think government's learned anything. You know, they, they've not had a proper inquiry, um, about the impacts of this, both to kids and, and not only to businesses, but to, to companies, um, you know, the, 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 um, reserves in different countries and all this sort of thing. So unfortunately, we don't seem to have learnt from that, but, it was a devastating period for us and our people, but you know, I, I, it certainly we had to go from twenty-one thousand to about six and a half thousand people in in about two or three months, and and that was really quite difficult. But you know, as a team, and I, I must give credit to my team, we had a war room here in um, in um, Brisbane on the on the fifteenth floor. And we spent the first three or four months 
here basically every day, initially every day of the week until um, until we got that money raised and we could start, you know, breathing a sigh of relief. Although, you know, it's still, we're only just, uh, like last year we only made 100 million profit and this year we're predicting that, you know, 290 PB, underlying PBT. So we still got a fair way to go yet. It was a credit to my to my team, uh, Adam, the CFO, Mel Waters, Ryan, our COO, to, that um, of of pulling together and, and the people in Treasury and, and um, the other areas that uh, luckily we had you know very experienced people right throughout and uh, it, it, it was a devastating. Yeah, very tough time. But let's let's assume we're post COVID, even though uh, the government's still playing around with. Um, different flights in and out of Australia, as, as you've commented on recently. But post-COVID, you've had to shut, shut a lot of shops and re-engineer your model. There's been some permanent changes, even though things are recovering. And obviously, you've got a big um, commercial business or a company business now, as you extrapolated before. What, what does the future look like? Because it sounds like you're still very enthusiastic about the future. You're talking about 2030 and so on and where you get to. Is it a different world? Is it more electronic? And where, where does Flight Centre fit in? And, and the other bit of that is I know you've got the Turner Index with FS Key coming down, and, and guess what? It's had a bit of a blip. It's gone the other way for a few years. Do, does that kick back in, and is that the opportunity? What, what, what's, what's Flight Centre look like, and where do they fit in? Yeah, it's a good question, Matthew. I think the the big thing for us at the moment, and, and yes, you know, there's plenty of big things at the moment, but... We really need the airfares to come down. We, we need people like Qatar, Turkish and other carriers to, to bring more capacity into this market. We need more We need more than two domestic airlines to bring those fares down too. And obviously Virgin's doing an IPO, so they're quite happy with higher airfares. This is domestically, so is Qantas. Um, that's probably our big thing. And I, I think... Over the tw- next 12 months, airfares capacity will come back in and airfares will come down, and that's good for us. But as a business, uh, you know, coming out of COVID in particular, compared to where we went in, we, yeah, we've got less, less leisure shops, but we've got uh, different models. Um, we, you know, we've probably got we've less than half the shops, but the shops we've got generally are in the right locations, particularly in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. In Canada, US and um, the UK, um, we have a slightly different models in leisure. But, you know, we see in leisure still a lot more opportunity, whether that's online. You know, from online, we've gone from 7% to uh, in leisure to about 15 16% of our TDV. We've got a big independent group, which I think this year will do about 1.3 billion in in TDV, and they're independently owned. And we've been in that market for five or six, seven years, but it has been growing quite rapidly recently. We've got the luxury, which is Travel Associates and uh, Scott Dunn, and we have other complementary leisure businesses like Travel Money, uh, yeah, like Top Deck and uh, Backroads Touring. Uh, and, and, and a number of other businesses there. So it's quite diversified. Um, certainly we're doing more online and more independent, which is obviously lower margin, but, but you know, lower net margin anyway. Uh, well, certainly lower gross margin, but a lot lower costs as well for us. 
So there's a lot of potential still in that leisure business. And there's the, the retirement of the baby boomers, which is now in full swing. Does that help you? Is that the tailwind you need to fully recover from COVID? Yeah, um, to, to a reasonable extent. The problem, you know, and, and it's certainly the over 50s that are doing a lot of the travel international now. But, you know, there, there's the, the, the problem is getting to the um, young people, you know, the 18 to 30s is a bit different now. And at some stage, um, you know, we need more of them on board as well. And uh, that's one of the, the challenges we're looking at. The other thing with these high airfares is that although the, the over 50s are travelling back quite well, it's very expensive for families, you know, particularly families of four or five uh, going to North America or Europe or even Asia, parts of Asia. Um, so that market hasn't really come back fully yet. That's another reason why lower airfares and more capacity is is really important to us. If you look at corporate, you know, our main brands there obviously are um, uh, Corporate Traveller and FCM, FCM Travel, which is the multinationals where the corporate travel is the SME, a lot of potential in in this business travel, and we've been growing quite rapidly, um, almost at our own expense, uh, at an expense because with FCM we've had so many wins and it takes quite a bit of time, effort and money to implement these wins, over which we've had billions over the last few years. So, you know, we... Um, and, and so FCM is a lower margin than uh, the SME business, which is quite a good margin. So it'll take us a while to get that FCM margin back to where we want it. Um, so these are some of the challenges in the way our business models uh, and, you know, the different brands, different geographies. For example, we have FCM now in 27 com- countries, whereas Corporate Traveller is in um, – and, and most of our leisure business is only in six countries – so, you know, it's, it's a geographical and uh, brand and business um, significant difference uh, post-COVID, but, but we're pretty positive about that we, we've got the balance about right. And before we lead the business, you just mentioned that 18 to 30 or that younger group of people. How do you make Flight Centre relevant when they're used to booking travel directly? It's a, it's a good point. And, and obviously we're getting more online bookings particularly uh, the younger people domestically and that. You know, airfares coming down is going to be important. Getting margins, better margins on airfares, selling more supporting products to airfares is a real key to us. But getting the the younger market um, is another challenge in itself uh, in terms of um, the sort of travel they're doing. And, 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 you know, a lot of the young people, we were talking yesterday to someone who runs schooly tours, mainly to places like Fiji and Japan and Europe to a certain extent. And young people, you know, 17 or 18, doing these schoolies things, they're finding that they need, a, a lot of what they need is uh, experiential rather than, you know, um, drinking. You know, certainly some of them just go on drinking on the Gold Coast but they can probably do that anywhere. They can do that in the Gold Coast or the Sunshine Coast or... In Munich. Yeah. Um, but that, so it's it's how you capture these young people who want that experience, and that is in that market, and that's that's one of the things that um, we're working on. It, it is, I can assure you it's, it's one of the areas that you'll hear a lot more about in the next few years. 
And get get away from the business now oh, and maybe finish up on just yourself. COVID hits when you're entering your your 70s. It's, it's a bugger when it arrives. But now you've kind of went on the other side of COVID and you're, as I said in the introduction, 74 now, it's 50 years in business. What, what, what's the fire in the belly like? You had a sabbatical in 2007, but you're back on the horse very quickly. How, how are you feeling? And, and what, is, what does succession look like at Flight Centre? Yeah, um, it's, it's a question that we discuss a bit um, at various levels. Um, I'm, I'm, um, I'm committed for another f- four or five years at least. And, um, you know, we've got a very experienced team. Um, I think um, in, in my team, which we call the task force, we have, we have nine people, including myself. And um, there's our people and culture leader has just joined us in the last, uh, about a year ago. But other than that, I think um, besides me, our average uh, time with flight centres is about 20, 21 years. So, you know, I've got, we've got a lot of experience, a lot of capability, um, and um, so I've got no problem with succession, uh, particularly, you know, it's um, it's likely to be at least four or five years' time. Um, I think COVID was really an interesting one for me and my team, I think, and the leadership team all over the world. Um, we've, we've done a lot more globalising since then, which has its uh, ups and downs, but um, we are more of a global company now and that global business services uh, and, and the globalising of our supply division as well is, is an indication of that. But it... Having to go through a challenge like COVID, which was, you know, you could argue a near-death experience. It, it really didn't get to that, but it was incredibly challenging and people had to really work well together. And um, and, and, and everyone did and everyone survived. Uh, Mel Waters Ryan, who was our COO and lately running supply, um, has retired um, and and I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple of other people that retire before me, but um, I might be wrong there. No one's indicated anything, but uh, yeah, we're we're in pretty good shape in terms of leadership, as far as, I'm, as I, I see. Um, but yeah, we are a global organisation in a lot of countries and uh, pl- plenty of challenges. So uh, yeah, it keeps us on on our toes. And what's happened, of course, as in a lot of industries. Is there a lot of um, early morning, late night um, calls, particularly when you're in those different time zones? You know, whether it's the the Americas or Europe or um, Australia, New Zealand. So, uh, plenty of there's still plenty of hard work and um, late nights, early mornings. Well, it sounds like you're a chance of celebrating the 50th anniversary of Flight Center, which I think would be about 2030, 2031. So that, that might be a goal for you. We might set it here. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because obviously Brisbane's talking a lot about the Olympics in 2032. And I, I said, well, I mightn't even be alive in 2032, let alone, you know, worrying about the Olympics. But no, um, hopefully uh, hopefully that that's that, that may be the, uh, the goal, Matthew. Very good. That sounds good. Well, let the adventure continue for a while yet. And thanks very much for joining us today. And happy birthday. Great story. And it's been a great company and well done. Congratulations. Thanks, Matthew.